It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This is Sound Matters with Tom Liu. Visit us online at soundmatters.tv. Compelling content, provocative perspectives, relevant music news, interviews, and insights. This is Sound Matters with Tom Liu. This is Sound Matters with Tom Liu. Visit us online at soundmatters.tv. All right, welcome to the show. Welcome to Sound Matters. Good morning, I'm Tom Liu. We entertain matters in music, marketing, and motivation. That's what we've been doing here. We've been doing it over five years. If you're a first-time listener to the show, welcome. Give us a shout-out on social media, uh, wherever you are. Follow me, at Tom Liu. It's at T-O-M-L-E-U. But the main website for the show is soundmatters.tv, and that's where we have all of our podcast episodes from the show's history, over 200 and some of them at this point. We're in our sixth year of doing it now. Couldn't be happier. We did a five-year anniversary episode a couple of weeks ago and all kinds of interviews from local artists all the way up to national artists and everybody in between. We have a lot, a lot of fun doing the show. And this show is really special because we're going to unpack and have a couple of guests calling in in a little while talking about the great Beatles documentary that's out that I'm sure everybody is aware of, whether you've seen it all or not, but it's definitely out there. It's called Get Back. It's about the Beatles recording what would become their last released album, but the Let It Be album in early 1969. It's a long documentary directed by Peter Jackson. Lord of the Rings, right? Is that Do I have that right? Spencer? Yes, you do. You yeah. Famous director for that. He directed this. And uh, what a great documentary. So much going on. Whether you're a big Beatles fan or not, whether you're like an aficionado or not, it's definitely interesting what's going on between the guys and all of the people there, wives and girlfriends and employees and engineers and producers, filmmakers, a lot happening. So I've got a couple of really good friends of the show returning, calling in here in a little while. The first, none other than the great Donnie V, formerly of Enough's Enough. He's going to be calling in. He's been on the show several times. He's a good friend. He's an amazing artist himself. And one of the best uh, John Lennon cover version guys I've ever heard in my life. He looks like him. He sounds like him. He's amazing. We're going to get his take on the Beatles doc. And also a little bit later on, my good friend Mark Jake Jacobson, better known as Gobble, he's going to be calling back in and we're going to talk to him about his views and his takes on it as well. So pretty exciting stuff. So soundmatters.tv is our website. Soundmattershow at gmail.com. That's our email. Let's take a quick break here. We're going to come back on our special Beatles doc episode of Sound Matters. We'll be right back after these. Don't go away.
a song right there off of the Let It Be album from George Harrison, penned by George Harrison, I Me Mine. We are in episode 118 here. We're going to be talking about the Beatles documentary today called Get Back. And it's myself, Tom Liu, and our co-host and producer right there, Spencer Jacobson. Spencer, how are you doing today? You doing all right? I am doing good. I am. And I, I am a little bit sad. Uh, this is uh, sort of not really related to the Beatles, but uh, sad to see that Meatloaf passed away this past week. Big fan of his. I don't think anybody should be surprised at his passing. Maybe surprised that he didn't have a heart attack on stage. That's more surprising to me than anything. One of my favorite artists, uh, the, the Bad Out of Hell album is one of my all-time favorites. Uh, as far as just albums go and album composition goes, I think that's just fantastic. That whole album, from cover to cover, it, it's just so well done. It's so high production. Uh, it feels like a stage show. It feels like a... A musical opera in a way, um, right? Or a rock opera. So much of what he did was exciting and a true entertainer through and through. Really fun sure. guy to watch in, in so many ways. So the Bad Out of Hell record is one of the all time biggest selling albums of all time. I think it depends if fourth or fifth on the list. We're talking with Michael Jackson's Thriller and Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, and Eagles' Greatest Hits, things like that. The company is really, really good. So, uh, yeah, rest in peace. Meatloaf, uh, the outpouring on social media from musicians and actors and all kinds of entertainers around the world has been amazing. And uh, what, 74 years old, I think. So uh, we wanted to mention that here as we kick off this episode here. We're talking about the Beatles today. And speaking of the Beatles here, before our guests call in here, I was on the morning show with uh, none other than Joe Dredge from WROK here. And we were talking about this documentary a little bit. So I want to pull up a little clip here from that. So check this out right here. You watch any documentaries right now, Tom? I'm in the middle of the Beatles documentary, The Get Back. Oh! We're going to do an episode on that on the Sound Matter Show. We're going to unpack all that. We're going to talk about it a little deeper and, and what's really going on, the interpersonal stuff between the members and, and the other people that work for them. It's fascinating. Has your opinion changed on any of the Beatles after watching them? No, no, it hasn't changed. It's just not about the Beatles, about the members of the Beatles. I mean, do you think differently about, about Lennon or Ringo or, or any of the other guys? No, I don't really think differently. And just to clarify, I mean, I didn't necessarily live through the right. Beatles. I mean, you know, I, I came to them in the 70s when I was a kid. They had since broken up, of course, but close enough. It's not that I changed my opinion on it. I just found it fascinating. These songs that are ubiquitous, the ones that they're talking about in that documentary or any of their other ones, to see how they actually came to be, to see Paul McCartney or John Lennon or any of them, or George, sitting there just sort of noodling around on the guitar or the piano with a a loosely formed idea for a song that's since become a classic that everybody's heard of. Whether or not you love the Beatles or not, whether or not you're a big fan or not, you can't escape these songs. And to see them in their primitive early stages and they're bringing them to the guys. And what's really fascinating to me about it, Joe, is that, you know, they're bringing it to the to the band. And you can see the trepidation. You can see a little bit of the Hemmen and Han and the other guys like, yeah, well, i just kind of waiting to get their turn to show the band their songs. That's common in any band ever in the history of music. I don't care what the genre is. And to see that playing out with with the biggest band in the world of all time is fascinating. It's really about the psychology of what's going on and the insecurities that they all had. They're all terribly insecure. Really? All of them. You, you sure. pick that up? Absolutely. John, um, George, he quits. He comes back. Uh, he wants to have more of his songs on there. They don't know if they like him. There's just the comments that are made. Well, use it if you want or don't if you don't. I don't care, George is saying to Paul and John. But he really did care. 
He really did care because his first solo album that came out just a year later or so, it's the triple album. So he had a lot oh, of material. Oh, jeez, I didn't but know did that. It. Yeah, All Things Must Pass, George Harrison's, well, technically it was his second solo album, but his first official release that was very successful it was a triple album. So he had a lot of songs stored up that the Beatles just never used, you know. And admittedly, he came into his own in the, in the later Beatle years. And some have said, yeah, that's because he got to sit and work alongside Paul McCartney and John Lennon for eight years. That will help out. He learned from the songwriting masters. But just that psychology and that interplay at that level, even at that point in their career when they were huge, is really fascinating if you think about it from that angle. Did you see any parallels? I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here, but it, your, your band's never uh, it reached the prominence that the Beatles did. <laughs> no. no. Uh, but, did you, but did you see parallels in between just how they worked stuff out and how yeah. how you had worked stuff out? Yes, and I think that's what I was trying to say a second ago. And, and probably anyone who's ever been in a group situation, a musical band of any sort, you can see that. You, you can see the give and the take. And uh, you want to bring something up, and then you're commenting or you're trying to contribute to somebody else's idea, and that's kind of a slippery slope. Or you have your idea, and then they're all jumping in and trying to interpret what you're trying to tell them, but it's may or, it may or may not be what you're hearing in your head, so you're trying to redirect. You see Paul redirecting. George, play it this way. He's like, well, then you play it if you want. If, you, if I'm not doing it the way you want it, then you play it. You see the realness, the humanity uh -huh. of it, and when I talk about the insecurities of it all, that's where it was coming through. So that part, I think, is, is really fascinating. Well, the one thing I have heard from uh, people that uh, I've watched, I think our, our friend down the hall, Double T, he checked it out. I think he said this. Uh, John Lennon came across as very playful and funny. I never thought of him as, as, as being a playful, funny guy. Did you, you gather that from, from the documentary? I did gather that from the documentary. He does do that. And here's the thing on that. Obviously, I didn't know John Leonard or any of these guys. But, you know, John, very astute uh, media guy. We talked about media training earlier. Uh -huh. John, very astute. All of them, really. And he kind of knew how to play the game. He knew the cameras were on. He was doing his thing. But John could also be goes there you know, and all that, and, and all of these things, and so, yeah, but then you see Paul, though, getting perturbed, uh, you, you normally Paul had the, oh, everything's great, everything's good, right, you know, and, uh -huh. uh, and but yet, he's like the leader at that time, he became the leader, John was the leader in the beginning of the Beatles, Paul became the leader toward the end, and he wanted to keep things going, he wanted it more directed, he wanted to use the time better, too much loosey-goosey for Paul, you can see his frustration, you can see some of the commentary when some of the people they were working for him, the music publisher, Dick James, comes in, he's talking about, yeah, we're going to be doing sheet music, talking about how they're going to sell Beatles songs as sheet music and talking some of the business. You can see Paul just on his face. You can just see his annoyance with that. Like, yeah, how much money, how much more money are you going to make off us? Ah. You know, you, you can, I'm picking up on some of these things. Really? You know, the business side of it. Paul, very serious. And that was one of the biggest takeaways that I learned from that documentary. Fascinating stuff. Just a quick overview of my take on just the early take of the uh, the Beatles documentary, Get Back. I want to send a shout out right now, though, to I think I have a first time listener here on the Sound Matters show today. And I believe it's my young nephew, Mr. Jackson Robertson. I think he's listening to the Sound Matters show for the very first time. Hey, buddy, I'm so glad that you're listening. You and your mom and your brother, your sister, I'm sorry, and your dad and everybody. And listen again, and we'll get you on the show sometime, okay? Does that sound like a deal? So I want to shout him out here on the Sound Matters show. It's episode 118. I'm Tom Lou, your host. Spencer Jacobson is here running things. We're talking Beatles Get Back Doc. We'll be back after these. Don't go away.
This portion of the show is brought to you by 16 Imaging Photography. Visit us at 16imaging.com. That's 16imaging.com for fine art prints, to book shoots, and to schedule one-on-one photography coaching for you or someone you know. 16 Imaging. Seeing things literally through lenses, figuratively, despite filters. Welcome back to the Sound Matters Show. I'm Tom Lou, your host. Thanks for joining me. Doing a show here, running down the latest Beatles documentary. The latest or the uh, kind of the, the monumental Beatles documentary, I guess I should say. Get Back, chronicling uh, their uh, time in the studio in January of 1969. And uh, we're just going to dig into this here. And I thought, who better to bring on this show today to talk about the Beatles and to talk about what they are all about, what they meant, and someone who I think knows an awful lot about him. And he's a friend of mine. He's a friend of the show. And I want to welcome him back to the Sound Matter show here. I think we have him on the line right now. It's none other than formerly from Enough's Enough. It's the great Donnie V. Donnie, good morning to you. Hey, good morning. How you doing? I sound a little funny. It's because I got a delay coming back. You know how that is with technology, right, Donnie? Yeah, I told you last time, why don't you guys get some professional equipment down there? <laughs> so you can do, do stuff the right way, you know, you're just still winging it. I know it. You'd think know, after you five think years of doing the show that we'd have this thing figured out a little bit. But first and foremost, really quick, what's going on with you? You got all kinds of things happening. Party time, the song and the video are out. You did a live show recently. You got some more live stuff planned coming up going forward? Yeah, so I'm starting to perform now. I guess the next shows are April or something. I don't know. I don't keep track of that stuff. But yeah, I'm starting to book shows now and I'm a storyteller thing. And then I'm looking to uh, putting a band together and, and get that up and float and, you know, probably in the summer. That would be fun for me and a lot of headache, but that'd be more fun for me. There's a lot of work to put all that together, but nobody better to do it than you. And your fans want to hear you and see you playing live, myself included. And we'll get out and do some more photos and everything. But let's jump into this Beatles documentary, Donnie. I know you're a huge Beatles fan. You've covered Beatles songs and John Lennon songs solo and all kinds of stuff through your career so far. What was a big takeaway for you watching this documentary? I mean, it's so long. There's so much going on. Everybody's kind of a fly on the wall on this thing. I know you know a lot about the band and their history. Was there anything really eye-opening for you that jumped out at you? Well, technically, I really don't like the Beatles, so I never watched it. <laughs> okay. you know, so, uh, Very good. <laughs> no, there's all kinds of stuff jumped out. It's just, this is, I, I do believe, personally speaking, it feels like uh, this introduced the Beatles to the world because nobody knew how they were, how they acted, or what their, you know, how their roles were and, and stuff like that. And it was like, uh, it was very big eye-opener about a lot of things, you know, but got to know the Beatles finally. They've had such good uh, PR people and things like that. They've quashed like every single thing. So all you ever known was exactly what they wanted you to know. You know what I mean? They did a real right. good job of uh, keeping the mystique, but you know, that's gone now. But I thought it was very cool. Very eye-opening as far as watching them, how they write the songs and go back and forth. And uh, it's just exactly the same way, as same process as, as how I do it. Right. It was amazing to see, you know, Paul coming in there and get back isn't really even formed. He's got just a basic idea. And then they, they start to uh, just go over it and over it with the band and yeah. everything. Did that bring back some memories for you? It did, except um, picture two of me. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You know, because <laughs> since we're going to do the collaborating, I have to go back and forth with myself because I didn't have Paul McCartney there to work with. I mean, so my imaginary self that I talk to all the time, you know, they helps me write the songs and just bounce back and forth, you know. Did anything change for you, Donnie, watching this Beatles documentary get back? I mean, for example, your views on, say, George's contributions or how Paul and John sort of interacted. It was There was a lot of moments for me that was like, wow, look at that. Was there something that, anything that changed for you as far as any of the guys individually or how they interacted with each other? I never uh, imagined how they acted when they were uh, high on different various things, you know, drinking and different, uh, you can tell it. I mean, I could tell as a seasoned uh, drug pro veteran, <laughs> I could tell what, who was on what at what time, you know, so it was, that was pretty funny. That was pretty entertaining. Definitely. Definitely. And there's this kind of well-documented well John was John on his heroin time then and stuff, yeah. I think. Yeah, you can tell. You can tell when he was coming back in, and who knows what they were doing in between the breaks and things. And uh, what about the commentary on the one spot, Donnie, where they had hid, as as it goes, they had hid some microphones in a table in a a little plant or something in one of the rooms when they were taking a break, and they caught some of the audio of John and Paul talking about who the rightful leader of the Beatles was, at least at that time. Did you remember that section and that part? I did, yeah. It's kind of... Violatings. I, I've done a couple of shows where uh, you're constantly mic'd up and constantly wired up, you know, and the only place that you could go where they would they would actually turn off your thing was as if you were going potty. You know what I mean? So that's the only time they would turn off your thing. So I remember that stuff, and uh, I'm sure they weren't aware of that. But it was really interesting to hear, hear John and Paul talking, you know? Yeah, and what's that yeah, like? That's got to be kind of unnerving since you, since you mentioned it about being experienced, you know, with being mic'd up all the time and stuff like that. Does that mess with your head? I was trying to imagine what they felt like knowing that the cameras were all there and, and everything was being filmed the whole time. You could tell these guys were definitely media savvy by that point. They knew how to do it. That's got to be pretty unnerving, you know, nerve-wracking, if you will, to know that your every word is being recorded. And your experience, is that how you found it too? Or did you kind of forget about it after? A while. No, it was very unnerving, and um, especially you know you want to just whisper to somebody or something like that. He still hear you, and um, <laughs> but at least with the Beatles, there's was no doubt they probably would have had uh, you know final approval of everything. So they they were probably uh, not so worried about you know whatever content got on there because they knew that they could control what was actually in the thing. You know what I mean? In the movie. Definitely. And they clearly, you know, Paul and Ringo, at least, they, they greenlit that section where they didn't know they were being recorded and they let that make it into the final the film and everything. One of the things that jumped out at me, Donnie, I want to get your take on it. You know, it's kind of 
It was easy, I think, for the average person to look in from the outside, which this documentary allows us to do. But few can truly understand where they'd been at that point in their career, what they'd accomplished and experienced, the pressure that they must have been under with all the employees and all the people, you know, working for them, counting on them. It's easy for us to say, oh, just, you know, let it be and relax, you know, but it's hard to imagine being them at that time. And it's easy to shoot arrows at any of them for any particular point about how they were or how they were interacting. But you obviously, you, you've been to the top of the music business in every which way through the years and everything. Can you take us inside, like, again, nobody's the Beatles, but when you're sitting there and you got to come up with all this music and you had to bear, as you've mentioned, you know, you were the guy, you wrote everything for Enough's Enough for all intents and purposes. How does that pressure affect you when you're sitting there trying to figure out what am I going to write next? What are these chords going to be? What am I going to sing about? How are the melodies going to go? Can you kind of talk us through those that haven't been in anywhere near that kind of a situation, what that's like? Uh, well, I don't know if I would call it any pressure. I mean, you know, I wasn't under the gun like they were, where you got this many days to have this many songs, you know. Uh, I mean, I've always got the song ideas, and, and it's a lot of work. It would be more than eight hours uh, watching me, like, work it all out. Start with just a little idea. You seem like you did with Get Back. You hear that one little tiny little idea, and, and it's like he hears that in his head. He's trying to work out exactly what it is he hears in his head. You know what I mean? And that's just that's the way it is. And you kind of like uh, like a receiver trying to translate it and fill in all the missing blanks for everybody else as he's writing the song but uh i wouldn't say there's pressure or anything it's just you know they they either come and they flow or they don't you know and if they're not flowing right away i'll you know i'll chip away at it for a while but if it's not just just, just not happening that day move on to something else you know and once things start clicking and uh it's just like magic you know you'll be trying this you'll be trying that and all of a sudden you stumble on that thing you're like ah there we go, and slowly, one by one, the little pieces click into place, and it's like, ah, oh, there we go, you know. Hopefully, you can make that all the way through the song, you know, but sometimes you can get, like, two-thirds of the way through. I got a couple right now, a couple key pieces that, that I still need to come up with, but there's some good ideas there. And when you're sitting there trying to communicate to the other band members your idea for these songs, whether you come uh, in with them pretty much fully formed, ready to go. Yeah, like some of them yeah. were in the documentary. They were more complete than others. But uh, trying to get the other guys in the band to hear what you're hearing, see your vision, kind of directing traffic on what the drum's going to be doing, the tempo, and what the harmony vocals and all that. Is that, that's got to be tough. Was that tough for you in your situation with Enough's Enough? Yeah, sure so it is. It's, it's real tough when there's no other guys. <laughs> oh, you mean like, well, well, no, as far as that would go, that's, I would just simply hand the other guys uh, the demo because, I, you know, I, I demoed all that stuff first, you know, on little uh, demo uh, recording stuff like that. And that, that's where I work out all the things until I get it, until I got it to a place where uh, now I just fine tune it and polish it up, you know. But basically, just here's the demo, here's the new songs. And there would usually be 10 to 15 of them, you know, just learn these, learn these, learn these, and then see which ones uh, click, you know. That's interesting. Donnie, this is good stuff. I want to pick your brain some more on this documentary here. It's interesting to get an artist perspective on the Beatles documentary. Let's take a quick break. This is Sound Matters. We'll be right back after these. Do not go away. But though they may be parted, there is still a chance that they will see.
All right, welcome back to the Sound Matters show. There's a little instant karma there. It's solo John Lennon, but that's not John Lennon, in case you were wondering. That's the great Donnie V there doing a great cover of that cool video with Donnie at a piano out by the water in Chicago, I believe that was. Donnie, uh, can you tell us about that video shoot for Instant Karma? What a great version. You're the best at Lennon covers, by the way. You know this. No, thanks. It's kind of the kiss of death. I just, a lot of people I don't think should sing the Beatles, you know what I mean? I just have a lot of similar characteristics because it was such a big influence that uh, if I'm going to do anything Beatles or Lennon or something, I would. you got to make sure you knock it out of the park. You but definitely that video, did on that, that one right there. It sounds like him. I mean, you resemble him. All of these things, you know, you've said, but not to color or take away from all of your original music, which is fantastic. Including your latest album, Beautiful Things, that's out there. It's back on Spotify now, by the way. Donnie V, solo on Spotify. And anywhere you get your stuff, you can get out there and stream that. But, Donnie, we're talking about this Beatles doc and everything. And what I want to ask you about George Harrison. You know, he's talked about a lot, but, you know, the, the relationship between George... And John and Paul really also gets a lot of time in this documentary. Looking at that, and again, I know your situation was different because you were the primary songwriter in your previous band and everything. But with these guys, you know, they were sort of fighting for airtime a little bit. Everybody knows George was always trying to get more of his songs in the mix, especially later on. And he did. What did you pick up with George and his relationship with the other guys? Did anything jump out at you there that you saw? And what's your take on George and his contribution to the Beatles? Well, from what it looks to me is, you know, there's, there's usually two main guys, you know, in a band. For the most part, it's usually the guy that writes mostly the music, the other guy that writes mostly the vocals and stuff like that. But And then there's the other guys. See, in my personal experiences, there wasn't any other guys um, waiting with songs and stuff like right. that. And I've been in a situation like that, but, you know, there's, there's the two main guys, and, and everybody knows that that's the songs they want to hear, and they've got a million ideas, and, and uh, you know, to try to squeeze George in there. You know, he was he was really writing a lot by the, at that point. And, um, you know, you can hear it just in that private conversation. You know, he's trying to get his stuff in there, but they've got egos and everything. You know, it's it's quite a tough situation, you know. I mean, when, when I demo for a record or something, I've got like 20, 25 song ideas. Those guys, there's three different writers there. You know what I mean? Imagine how many song ideas they got going and trying to get them all in and which ones are the best. And But, you know, that should be a tough situation. For George, you know what I mean? It had to be, uh, that's when he decided, you see, you hear him say right there, I think I'm just going to make my own record. Yeah, there's that one part in there where he's talking to John. I think it was in, I don't know if it was part three or part two of the documentary, Get Back. But uh, he was saying, you know, I've got all these songs and I'd like to hear them all one after another, you know, as coming from me as they should be on, on a record. And then John at the time, remember, this is January 69. John's kind of poo-pooing it a little bit, at least from what I could hear. But then just five months later, John's first solo single under the Plastic Ono Band, uh, Give Peace a Chance, was released. So he was already probably thinking along those lines as well. Would you have welcomed the additional writers in your previous situation, or are you so accustomed to doing it the way you've always done it for 30-plus years now that that would have been difficult for you? Well, that depends on uh, on the contribution and what the, the other one has, uh, what his idea is, and if it's, you know, maybe the best idea wins. Yeah, I would have, I would have well, I've been in a few situations where there's some collaborating, and most of the time when I collaborate with somebody, uh, I end up using mostly my ideas, you know, and so you got ego problems and stuff like that. So there's always like some little bit of friction and animosity when you're doing that stuff. You know what I mean? The other thing I want to mention too, and get your take on this kind of going around the, the horn here with all the guys, but Ringo, 
and, and Ringo's contributions, people can dismiss him sometimes. And some people do. You know, you read it through the years. Oh, he's just a drummer. And what's that joke? You know, Ringo wasn't even the best drummer in the Beatles, I've heard people say, which I think is crap. I think he was amazing. He's sitting there. He's not saying a lot, but he's tuned into everything. And he's coming in right when he needs to and everything. What's your take on Ringo and his contributions to the group? He's the um, secret weapon. You know, there's just nobody ever focuses enough on because the beats and stuff that he's coming up with, they're not, those aren't just necessarily obvious beats to those songs. And that's why those songs take shape and stuff the way they do. It's like the people that worked with them said, uh, you know, whenever it was all four of them contributing, like in a songwriting situation, you know, recording something that just the magic, the stars would align. And I can understand that and get that, you know. Definitely. I, I'm jumbled today because it's so damn early. This is the earliest show in the crack of noon. And uh, <laughs> so I'm forgetting what I was talking about halfway through. Uh, you're fine. Answer. No, you're good. We're, we're just getting your take on this. I think it's really interesting to hear, you know, someone that's achieved what you have in your musical career to kind of weigh in on this. It's good. You're right. I think Ringo doesn't get the credit. I heard one guy write, you know, he was the glue guy and affable, invaluable buffer between the more combative Beatles, meaning George, oh, yeah. John, A different Paul. drummer would have had a completely different result. The Beatles was just one of those cases, you know, that was that's God, God working through uh, these, you picked these four guys, so it had to be those guys. It has to be that setup, that chemistry and whatever, and you take one guy out of there and it's not the same, you know, but there's, there's so much about that stuff that it made me feel good to watch that, because there's, there's little things like uh, writing and stuff where people never understand the term, the, the line sings well. You know, when you write uh, some lyrics or something, you know, uh, so a lot of people don't get that, you know, that the line, you can say what you're trying to say, but not only does it have to rhyme, the words have to flow off the tongue and roll off the tongue and, and sound cool, you know, and that's, I could see just with them, you, you get the vowels and the syllables in your head when you get the idea, you can hear it. You can hear the vowels and syllables, but you got to fill in the words. You know, and uh, it's tricky. But that was really interesting to see that. Cause I've had so many arguments with guys that are like, I'm like, no, he goes, no, just say this, this lyric. I go, it doesn't sing well. You know, it sounds retarded. And it's cool to see that, that, uh, you know, guys as great as them, that they have that same uh, term. You know what I mean? Right. That's, that's a lot of it. It really is when, when you get the words to sing well. You know, and then you, it, it's more important that they sing well than it is what they say. <laughs> that's interesting. Now, I was going to ask you that. I mean, is that a fairly common thing in songwriting where to make it sing better and flow better within the context of the song, maybe the lyric itself, the actual words aren't, I mean, they're important, they're, but not, they're as, not important? as important. Is that fair? Well, they're not as important as, uh, well, at least for me, you know, because I'm all about the melodies and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm no great poet to begin with. I just, I write lyrics because I need something to sing. But with me, it's, especially in the, like, the early it's enough stuff, I cringe when I, like, especially doing the storytellers thing where I actually have to sing these lyrics and there's no band or anything. I cringe at a lot of them because a lot of those earlier lyrics, they're just purely singing well. They, they're terrible lyrics, you know? I was just new at that, so... Yeah, that's like the whole thing for me. The words have to sing well and, and then try to, if you can make them clever too is uh, great. But um, That's why it's that's hard why and it's not hard everybody can write great songs, songs, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Donnie, I appreciate you coming on here. Our time is short. I could talk to you about this all day and maybe we'll have you back and do it again. But before we let you go here, we got about a minute. I just want to make sure I plug where people can find what you're doing and all that kind of good stuff. Is it DonnieV.com, right? DonnieV.com is my name with the .com. Everything uh trying to get it together you know get a little more uh professional in the way we're doing stuff so now uh you use the website and it tells you everything that's going on it, i checked into the website because because 
I don't ever know what's going on, so I just look at the website. <laughs> That's how you get your marching orders and figure it out. That's funny. Donnie, I so appreciate you taking a few minutes here. Sorry about the hiccups. I appreciate your insights, Donnie, both uh, as a musician and artist yourself for all these years, but then your love of the Beatles. And uh, for coming on, taking a few more minutes for us here on the Sound Matter Show. I appreciate you, my friend. You're the best, and we'll talk to you soon, okay? All right, Tom. Go back to bed. Thanks. Thanks, Donnie. All right. All right. There he goes. It's Donnie V, formerly of Enough's Enough. Check him out. Check out his covers of the Beatles stuff, but more importantly, check out his original music. DonnieV.com, Spotify, Apple Music, anywhere you are. Coming back here in hour two, more Beatles Get Back documentary talk with Mark Jake Jacobson. I'm Tom Lou. Don't go away. We'll be right back after these. Provocative perspectives, relevant music news, interviews, and insights. This is Sound Matters with Tom Liu. This is Mark Dean, UK rock journalist. You're listening to Sound Matters with Tom Liu. Listening to Sound Matters with Tom Liu. Visit us online at soundmatters.tv. All right, welcome back to Hour 2 of Episode 118 here on the Sound Matters Show. I'm your host, Tom Liu. Spencer Jacobson is here running things, producing and engineering. Big thanks to my previous guest, Donnie V, formerly of Enough's Enough and a solo artist extraordinaire to get his insights spencer on uh, the beatles documentary get back which is what we're talking about here today pretty fascinating right i mean he's a guy who's been there done that not at the level of the beatles i mean who has nobody but it's really interesting to hear you know, his situation pretty different being the chief songwriter of of his band and his music uh as opposed to the beatles you know they shared a lot of that but really fascinating to hear him sort of weighing in on that and having some experience even being recorded like yeah. that ongoing, you know? It is totally interesting. And that's one of those things, too. Uh, you brought up the uh, scene where they put a microphone into a plant on a table in the cafeteria. Yeah. And that struck me as like, wow, this is some this is some stuff that I was not expecting us to get. <laughs> it's one of those things you don't think about, too. I mean, I certainly have never been at the level where, you know, there's a microphone constantly recording everything around me. And it's got to be tough to be yourself. Because yeah. you're constantly running that through the filter of, okay, everything I say is going to be going to be reviewed. You know, if not for your job, you know, people are just going to judge everything that's being said and spoken. And yeah. even looks, you know, when you talk about cameras being on you at all the time, there are so many points in the documentary where you look and each member of the Beatles is, you know, either talking to someone and then they'll glance and they'll catch a camera, you know, zoomed right in on them. And they, you can feel that for a moment there, they lose their just, I guess, natural presence. And then all of a sudden, you just kind of, a wall sort of goes up for a second. And they're professionals. They're huge at that point, world-renowned and everything. And they're quickly able to, you know, pull down those walls and, you know, just be themselves a little bit more. But it's crazy just to nonstop be recorded in one way or another. It's a good point you make. And I think what occurred to me, and I might have read this somewhere as well, but what we saw with the Beatles documentary, Get Back, it was reality TV Long before we had reality TV. Yeah, that's it a good way of putting it. was that whole unfiltered thing, cameras everywhere, filming a lot of the mundane, in-between-time stuff. 
but then, you know, producing it, editing it to make it something to watch later and all of that. And these guys were doing it in January of 1969. It's pretty fascinating. And a lot of other statistics and things that I'm going to get into here with my next guest. So I want to bring him on the show here, and I'm so happy he's called in. He's returning to the Sound Matter show again. He's one of my good friends from way back. We met in college. We're former bandmates together, written some songs together, played together for years and everything. It's Mark Jake Jacobson, affectionately known as Gobble to me. Hey, buddy, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm doing really well, man. I'm so glad you got to call in and uh, make a couple minutes here for us today, Gobble. I know you. Uh, you I know you're a huge Beatles fan. You're a musician yourself. You're a singer-songwriter for many, many decades. You and I go way back, and I know yeah. you're as much of a Beatles freak as me, if not more so. And you've got a history with these guys, and you know a lot about them. I just want to get some of your takes on this this documentary as we kick off here. Um, I don't know if you got to hear what Donnie was saying, but he's got some experience with being, you know, recorded and mic'd up like that, and for a long period of time i don't have that experience i was never in any band that was that big you know what i'm saying can you imagine that i said it was pressure filled he didn't think it was that much pressure for them probably what do you think i mean can you imagine being in that room doing that at that time i mean i have a hard enough problem when there's somebody else in the room with me when i'm cutting vocals so you know (laughs) that's just a challenge enough uh but you know, I, I think it's by that point in their career, they've been under the microscope for such a long time. And I think, you know, like we were just saying before, those moments of like, you know, when they realize that the camera's on them, there's that moment of clarity that they have, and then they just go back to being themselves. And that, that's what I was really struck by in this, like how much of them just normal they seem to be. And, you know, it's just how used to the spotlight they were and just just seemed like it was a normal part of their day. Yeah, and in that point too, you're right. And you know, and by 1969, they'd been superstars, world famous for years, many years. And you can see it in the film. I can see it at least. You know, they're definitely media savvy, and they they oh, know how to turn on their Beatle personas, each individual one, when they need to. But then there's those moments where they're a little bit more unguarded, where the thing comes down. I, I thought most notably for me was how Paul was a lot of the time. You know, you could see him visibly frustrated at times or concerned and I saw a lack of you know he got impatient that things weren't moving along he said several times you know we need to be more organized we need to be you know moving this thing forward and there's a lot of goofing around going on and stuff like that but uh reality tv before it was reality tv right yeah absolutely you know especially it kind of brings to my mind the one moment that you would never see even on reality tv is the part where I think it's in episode three. They're sitting in the in the control room, and Ringo just says, "I farted." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. like it, you know, they're just like, "Yep, that's what it's like to be in a band." And two, just how natural, just like how just normal. And nobody cared. And I think it was yeah. Paul right after that. He just like walks away, he like steps away. <laughs> if you, you know, very common thing that happens in band rooms, uh, band rehearsal rooms and studios and all that. They don't smell good. <laughs> no, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a thing. Let's put it's it that a way. Thing. It's a thing. So, you have to kind of be in a band to understand that kind of camaraderie, uh, that openness. It's like being with your family, you know, it's just, and it was clear that these guys were family. Even, you know, whatever disagreements they might have had, they really felt, it seemed watching them, it was like watching me and my brother will have a little argument here and there, but then we, you know, we're back laughing with each other again, you know? Yeah, and you know, and it's, it's another thing to point out, you know, talking about the reality TV thing, but it's worth pointing out, too, that in 1969, going back now, I mean, what is that, 53 years, whatever it is at the time of this, up until that point, most artists, bands, entertainers of the day, 
they were only seen in, you know, stage managed formats, if you will. They were never in an unfiltered, raw, yeah. direct way like this. I, we today are so accustomed to the reality TV thing and social media and reels and videos and TikToks and Instagram and all that stuff. You know, everything is live and real and, well, it's not all unfiltered, let's face it. Filters as yeah, yeah. thing on people's photos and all that. But back then, that was kind of unheard of. And to add to it, just a reminder to everybody, all of the Beatles during the time of this filming weren't even 30 years old yet. They were all <laughs> in their 20s. Lennon was 28. Yeah. Ringo Starr, he was also 28, I think, at the time. Paul was 26. George, 25. Can you believe how, think back to when you were 28, 25, 26, doing yeah. that kind of stuff. Can you imagine? Not even close, and they seem a lot older. Like, if you've ever seen that movie, Eight Days a Week, I watched it uh, right before the Beatles thing had come on. And, you know, you get a really good sense of, like, how they've grown up. And they were, you know, they looked like they were probably in their late 30s by this time. Yep. You know, just that, just what they did. And they've been just, they've been huffing it. Like, you know, they were in the studio every six months. They were putting out albums. It was just this machinery that just kept going on and on and on for almost 10 years, really. And so by this time, that reality TV show, you know, you're right. Up until that point, we'd only seen the glossiness. You know, we'd only seen whatever, you know, the publicist or whatever the official view of not only other artists, but them. You know, we had eight days a week help in that stuff. And uh, not eight days a week. Um, hard days uh, night. Hard days night, yeah. And that was pretty much the only thing we ever saw of the Beatles. We never got this, you know, fly on the wall view you know, where you actually kind of felt like you kind of, you come away feeling you know them. But I think yeah. it's easy to forget that at the time the original Let It Be, because there was a film called Let It Be that came out from these exact sessions in 1970 that was nowhere, I think it was just a regular feature length film length, but when it was released in 1970, these songs that we're hearing in this Beatles documentary, Get Back, you know, Let It Be and Across the Universe and Don't Let Me Down and Get Back and all of that, they weren't yet classics. They weren't no. yet these ubiquitous, uh, in hindsight, songs that we look back now and go, oh, gosh, you know, these are world-renowned songs, <laughs> soundtrack to our life. At the time, they were just new songs by the biggest band in the world, but they were just brand new songs. To me, that's yeah. just mind-boggling. Your thoughts on that? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, watching the inception of Get Back from this germ of an idea that Paul, you know, kind of is kind of pulling out of the ether, you know, was... To me, just a revelation of just as an artist, just seeing the creative process in motion in real time, so to speak. That was to me fascinating. And just the fact that, you know, I know John was quoted as saying something about, you know, just doesn't matter what the words are in the beginning, just get it down so that you get the complete thing. And, and you watch them refining and refining and refining it, you know, till basically, you know, they get on top of the rooftop and it's the version that you come to know and love you know, 50 years later. Definitely, yeah. Donnie was just echoing that a minute ago, Donnie V, too, about maybe the words in some cases are less important than how the words sing, how the words and the phrasings and the vowel sounds actually sing within the context of a song or the melody that you've written against the chord progression and things like that. I found that to be very eye-opening as well. As a songwriter and a musician myself, and I know you can relate, watching this, being that fly on the wall as these guys are 
working through these ideas is just brilliant and, and a goldmine for me personally. I just loved every second of it. I was rewinding things, going back. It took me yeah. twice as long to get through the already long doc as it was. Were you finding some similar things happening with you? Yeah, I mean, first time through, I was just in trance. I was just kind of soaking it all in. And then on subsequent viewings, I've been kind of stopping it, kind of going back and really seeing what that moment was. When Lennon's, you know, coming up with words and he just says, I'm just making this up as I go along. You know, were you talking about, you know, that the words weren't necessarily as important as, say, the song structure and the melody and things like that. That to me was just really cool watching him work like that. Just how effortless and just how much fun, you know, that they kept always bringing to the, the process of creation. Because when you think about when they call it playing in a band, it really is play and they clearly had... You know, they clearly made it play. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And they're even playing versions of the, of the song that they're working on, but they're, you know, the version where they're doing different voices and different dialects and things like that. And they're playing it, you know, kind of a country version of it just to have fun with the song because it's, I think that's part of the brilliance of them is that even though they were they were great at what they did, they were really um, they were excellent craftsmen, right? They were master craftsmen at songwriting, but they understood that the main component was joy and fun. And you know, when they're playing together, it's never more evident that it's a fun, joyous moment for them. Good point on that, and and they are, and I think some of that. Um messing around stuff that you're talking about, you know, different voices, different styles, genres, whatever. You could say they were just blowing off steam, and perhaps they were, but I can speak from experience, you know, being in a band myself for a long time. You do that, too. There is some utility to doing that, because sometimes those goofy little jams you go off on, those rabbit holes you run down, whether writing the song or just playing them or both, sometimes yields usable ideas, right? You know, I'm sure you've experienced that, too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, sometimes that time you made a mistake ends up sounding really cool and you're like, okay, let's repeat that because it ended up being the thing that made it not, that made it atypical from what you were expecting, right? So it creates that unexpected, which, you know, that just opens you up and really lets the listener kind of go, oh, okay, I want to keep listening to this. This isn't just same thing rehashed over and over again. Yeah, good point. We're talking about the Beatles Get Back documentary that's out there right now. I'm talking with Mark Jake Jacobson here, singer-songwriter, bandmate of mine for many, many years. We're going to come right back and talk some more about the Beatles documentary, get some more insights on some of the some of the dynamics going on, some of the subtleties between the guys and everybody in the rooms there for those, what, 21 days in January of 1969. <laughs> this is the Sound Matter Show. I'm Tom Lou. We'll be right back after these words. Don't go away.
And you're right, you can see that, especially during the one segment of it. I don't know if it was episode, I think it was the second one. It was just Paul and Ringo in there, and John hadn't shown up yet, and it was right after George had quit and walked out at the end of the first one. You know, and, and Paul says something like to Ringo, you know, well, then there were just two of us, and kind of had some emotion in his eyes and in his face, like maybe this is the end. Then John called, he goes, gets the call, comes back, and he's like, John's coming in. And Paul's like a kid in the candy store. Like, John's coming in. <laughs> You know, and my partner is coming there. But yet, at the moment, you could argue that 
you know, Paul's the one bringing in the majority of the the song ideas at that point, perhaps. You know what I mean? Well, he's just kind of like a machine. Like, he's Paul's always worked. <laughs> and for him, it's not really work necessarily, but he's always just, there's always, it's music to him. Music is his life. It's like, it's always this constant bit of creation. Definitely. And the other thing, the other I, thing I think, too, oh, Gobble, that kind of jumped out at me on this, you know, again, to kind of put the history of all this into context, the Beatles were this huge, successful corporation in 1969. Millions of albums sold, multiple hit songs, millions of dollars pouring in, all this stuff. And then this tension, I find it this interesting tension between George and John and Paul. And, and George, it's well documented, you know, always trying to get his songs in and more of them into the mix and all that. And I totally get that. But then you can also understand Paul and John saying, oh, look, what we've been doing up until this point is clearly working, <laughs> right? We yeah. as the main two songwriters is working. It's proven, you know, quit belly aching about it, George, and go buy another house or something. <laughs> you know, but George wanted to get his stuff in there and he ultimately did as a solo artist. But what did you take away from the dynamic between George and the other two guys? Yeah, it, you know, because obviously George is the youngest of the four. And it was very much like a little brother. You've got the, the two older brothers who are, who are always playing around. And then there's that third one who's like kind of watching in the wing, like seeing what they're doing and the mistakes that they make and the good things that they do. And George is kind of there. And then he comes up with, you know, something, <laughs> you know. And, yeah, and, and, and here so, comes the sun. Yeah, and here comes the sun. Just absolutely two beautiful, amazing songs that are just, you know, as Frank Sinatra said about George's something, the greatest song ever written by Lennon and McCartney. That's true. They did get that accolade from Frank, uh, which is yeah. the chairman of the board, says the greatest song ever written. That's a pretty powerful comment, for sure. Yeah, um, and the other thing that I think really kind of stuck out to me was, you know, for years and years and years, you know, they talk about how Yoko broke up the band and this and that and how she was really maligned for many years and I myself even bought into that history that was really kind of perpetuated but you see her there she's doing her thing you know she almost had no effect it was like you know when they're playing together it didn't really matter who was around them. it was the four yeah. of them I would agree with that. You know, I think Yoko did, history has given her the, the short end of the stick on that. Perhaps that's changing now. Yeah, sure, she was there, and that represented a difference. But there was a lot of people there. A lot Absolutely. of workers and studio and the film crew and, and all these people. But what yeah. did she do that was so bad? I mean, she was just sitting there basically as a security blanket to John. I mean, I, I don't think that that's a stretch to say that. She was right there the whole time. And I think a lot of it goes to the way the press was, because you saw them them reading the newspaper about the Beatles and, and the kind of the scandal rags that they were reading about how, you know, George and John had come to fighting. And John's like, Wait, that's never happened except that one time we had a food fight with each other. And so, you know, a lot of that stuff was built by the press to sell paper. And Paul McCartney even commented on that at one point in the doc, too, when he said, you know, <laughs> yeah. 50 years from now, people are going to say yeah, the band broke up because Yoko sat on an amp. Absolutely. I laughed out loud at that because it was like, wow, how prophetic. Definitely. And I don't think that her presence was as big of a disruption from what I saw. But then again, you know, I wasn't there. Linda was there. Patty Boyd showed up once. You know, there were other people in and around there. You know, um, Heather McCartney, Linda's daughter was there. Ringo's, you know, playing with her and the drums and doing stuff like that. And they were just all kind of doing their thing. And you can forget sometimes that this is the biggest band in the world then. Arguably, to this day, you know. I agree. Even Paul was talking about that. He's like, 
It's like John and Yoko. He's like, you know, if it became between the Beatles and, and Yoko, then he would choose Yoko. It's like he loves her. It's like, absolutely. And I think, you know, for us regular people, it's hard to understand what it's like to live in their bubble, you know, to live under that intensity for such a long time. And how, you know, maybe not normal that seems to have your girlfriends around the studio because we're used to, I mean, we've had girlfriends at our band practices, right, as we're working on things. So, but we know how much of a distraction is, but we're not the Beatles. We didn't put in our 10,000 hours prior to that, you know, those years and years and years of like being together where you have that bond with each other that's as strong as any family would be. Yeah. Talking about, you know, sort of the history being rewritten as far as Yoko's part of all of this and i think people need to relook at that and not put so much of the blame on her any of it really but one other thing that i think gets clarified here you see how in this documentary at least to me that it really does show paul's huge influence in so many ways i mean he oh, yeah. arguably has the most ambitious vision for the band at least at that time uh he has the strongest work ethic so it seems and most of the songs that would go on to become on the Let It Be album later. But in reality, Paul was the last of the Beatles to leave and finally officially quit the band and the most committed to keeping them together. I think the film, the documentary, makes it clear that even though Paul has those moments where he seems kind of controlling, somebody's got to control something, right? Well, they, they mentioned that about when they call Mr. Epstein died. They always had respect for Brian. After he died, you know, if they kind of became self-producing, they kind of became this rudderless thing. And you can kind of hear it in the music after that, where, you know, even from like the White Album and stuff like that, where it just became really experimental, less rigid and controlled. And things were just really, you know, they were really kind of finding themselves as who they are as, as people beyond musicians, because he was kind of like their dad the whole time. The one who kind of like, yeah. you know, kind of led them along. And they were, up until that point, they didn't have to think about what they were going to be doing in the future or how regimented. They always had somebody kind of telling them what to do. And it was like, it had to be one of them that, that did it. And it was Paul. You know, Paul was the one who said, all right, I'm going to step up and I'm going to be the one who organizes this stuff. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I felt like myself in Paul's shoes where you have a vision of something that's not working out. And it's pretty much everything that could have gone wrong during this time went wrong. Like yeah. having somebody leave the band, right? going into your new studio and none of the equipment working. It was very Spinal Tap before Spinal Tap, you know. I saw a lot of the parallels that, like how true Spinal Tap is to, like, to how things really are. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And you're right, everything did go wrong, come to think of it. And and then looking at the equipment and some of the primitive equipment that they were using at the time, I and mean, even the microphones, those, what about those makeshift uh, pop filters on the mic? So what were those things? And what were those mic stands? I mean, some of that stuff just was mind-boggling to me as a musician, looking at some of the gear. You think they could have had a little bit better setup, you know, being the Beatles? Yeah, I think when you realize that, you know, the Apple studio was really, I mean, they had George's equipment there. They had the equipment from Abbey Road slash EMI. So it was really kind of a, a really a basement pit because they were literally in the basement of that building. And so they were kind of pulling things together. And, you know, I hear this from a lot of really, you know, producers, people like Butch Walker and stuff like that. It doesn't really matter. The equipment isn't necessarily as important as the moment that you're able to capture it on. And obviously they were still dealing with, all those microphones were pro-level microphones. But yeah, you're right. It's just the pop filter, just, you know, rubber band around the uh, the capsule, you know? 
Some of that stuff, I, I kind of wondered, you know, how are they not getting so much mic bleed? I mean, you got Paul sitting there right in front of Ringo with his mic pointing right at Ringo. Yeah, there was a little barrier there, but there wasn't like what we have today and all that. And I'm just, I'm kind of amazed from the engineering side that they even got the sounds that they got given the setup in that room. Yeah, and I, well, I think that goes even back, I think, in Abbey Road, they didn't have much in the way of isolation. So, you know, those early tracks, you know, it was pretty much they only had a couple tracks to go with at the time and so they were really dealing with only eight tracks you think about you know we're used to now with an unlimited tracks in our digital audio workstation right but at that time you know they had the only this finite number of things and how important it was to have an engineer who understood that you know where they're even talking there's that one point where glenn john is talking to paul about his bass sound you know just how critical you know somebody like a glenn johns is is being able to hear that mix live and knowing kind of how it's going to affect the other tracks that they're working with at the time. And then the big cool moment for me too was they have a couple of those shots of showing none other than Alan Parsons, who was just a lowly tape <laughs> operator at the time. Of course, he'd go on to do the engineering on Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon and of course of his, yeah. his own albums and songs. And I'm just like, wow, that was, I'd forgotten about that till I saw him in there. Yeah, and Glenn Johns was, was leaving to go work on Led Zeppelin. Right. <laughs> It's, it's just crazy. Like He's got a great book out, Glenn Johns. It's called Sound Man. I highly recommend. I've got that. It's a interesting read and listen if you're into that. Listen, Mark, Jake Jacobson, I so appreciate you, buddy. We're running up on the clock here. Thanks for your insights on this. I know there's a million more things we could talk about here, and perhaps we will again. I know you and I will talk more about it off the air. Is there any place you want to send anybody to check out your work, where you're at out on social media? Is there a place or two uh, where you're going to point anybody to? I so appreciate you coming on here and talking about this with me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I really appreciate that, the opportunity. I don't have anything right now. I've actually just been, as you know, just working on songwriting right now. And um, very soon here, I'm trying to get these songs finished up. I'll definitely let you know where you can find everything. Um, very good. Yeah, hit a brother great. up over here, man. We got to do Absolutely. some more stuff together. We'll work on more stuff together. Definitely. It's Mark, Jake, Jacobson. I call him Gobbles, my good buddy. <laughs> Thanks so much, Mark, for coming on the Sound Matters show again. We'll talk to you again. We'll have you back on again in the future, okay? You've got it, buddy, anytime. This is Sound Matters, episode 118. I'm Tom Lou. One more quick break here. Actually, two more quick breaks here before we end the show. Some final thoughts on the Beatles Get Back documentary. Don't go away. I'm Tom Liu, talking about the Beatles today. If you're a Beatles fan, if you're not a Beatles fan, it's still pretty fascinating to me. Uh, we're talking about the documentary, Get Back, the namesake of the documentary, and named after this song right here. I'm playing some tracks here from the Let It Be Naked, it's called. It's the remastered version of the Let It Be album. Some people really prefer this version of these songs, Spencer, than the actual produced original Let It Be album that was released, produced by Phil Spector, with a lot of strings and other things that added to it later that I think it's pretty widely known that most of the guys weren't a big fan of his production, so that's why they released this naked thing years later. But fascinating stuff. Interesting to get these takes, right, Spencer, from guys like Mark Jacobson and, and Donnie V. Similar takes, but then different things that everybody picks up, including you, too. For sure. I mean, there's, there's so much that can be talked about with the documentary because a it's it's eight hours long i mean there's naturally there's just going to be a ton of stuff to go over but 
you know, everyone notices something different. And I think you were talking about it early on in the show, the interpersonal relationships between the guys. And you talked about it with Donnie, too, a little bit. But so much of it, they were just four guys playing their instruments in a band together. And so many people can relate with that. And that's one of those things, too, I noticed is these are just normal. These are just human beings here sitting around. And so many times you could tell they were bored waiting for something to happen. They were, you know, when they first moved in to the Apple studio basement, there was so much boredom there that first day when they were supposed to start recording and everything wasn't ready yet. And right. there was just a lot of messing around, a lot of just doing different things. Even when they were at the film studio, the different versions uh, that Mark was talking about, the different versions, you would hear a country version and how wildly talented all of them were. And Paul McCarty, especially the different voices he could sing in and just the different things he would come up with just in the moment and start playing and then everyone else would pick up on it and start riffing on it. It, it was just fascinating to watch these four, I don't know, monoliths of music culture all together in the same space, just being who they were rather than being the Beatles up on stage, performing, smiling, you know, yeah. the, all that. You got to see them actually being the individuals that made up the Beatles. Those are good points. And, you know, we know these people, these, these are four of the most famous people in the world. I don't think that's arguable at all. But, you know, talking back earlier, we were talking about, you know, the fact that it was kind of reality TV before reality TV. One person wrote, I read, said you could film a novelist in the midst of writing a masterpiece, but it wouldn't be much fun to watch someone just sit and silently typing, right, writing a book. But the magic of making music, as depicted in this Beatles documentary, Get Back, that we're talking about, it's pretty intoxicating. It's a spontaneous spectator sport, as one guy wrote. And I think that's a really good way to look at that. You're, you're seeing this kind of play out. Is it for everyone? Probably not. It's a long haul for people that maybe aren't big Beatles fans. But I've heard and read some things from people that have, are admittedly, you know, they're not big Beatles fans they're not like super fans like maybe me or my buddy mark or, or donnie v but they're interested enough and they found it fascinating especially if they're into music music production in general especially for anyone who's ever been in a band of any sort uh, which i can obviously attest to there's a lot of dynamics there it doesn't matter what level you're at they're going on between the people in the room when you're creating music like this there's a lot of psychology happening underneath the surface and you can you can see a lot of that in here as you watch these guys kind of going through all of this and dealing with their own personality issues and their relationships with each other and and all the things that we've talked about thus far None of us can, of course, as I said, with Donnie was on, you know, relate to what it's like to be at their level. Right. Going through this at that point. You know, it's, it's easy to forget. They're all multimillionaires at this point and have been for years. And they're sitting in there and they're knocking out some new songs. Stuff that they've been doing together for better part of a decade at this point, you know. So and a couple other just small things, you know, a lot of toast is eaten. <laughs> I don't know so if much. That. So There's much. a lot of toast eaten all the time. I think that must be a British thing. Uh, and with whatever they put on it, jam or jelly or marmalade right. or whatever. And then the other big one is, is anyone not smoking <laughs> the entire time? I, I mean, was just cigarettes endlessly. I just felt and like cigars. Cigars were out too. <laughs> I mean, geez, the smell in that place. Because that the the director of the documentary there making, gosh, his name is slipping my mind. Uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg. That's it. Yes, he was constantly with a cigar. I don't think there was one yeah. shot that I've seen so far because I'm I'm just over halfway through the whole thing. There's not been one shot where he does not have a cigar in hand, either lit or with a match in the other hand, lighting it. 
And I just can't imagine the, the smell of that. Whether you're a smoker or not, the scent inside of a closed environment like that must have been intense. Yeah, for sure. And it's tough to watch. too. I found it specifically you're tough watching George smoking because we know later, obviously, he died from cancer. You mm-hmm. know, and he smoked his whole life and, and all of that. And you see these guys because they're... They're popping one in after another. You see Billy Preston with a cigarette while they're playing. Like he's got yeah. it in his mouth and he puts it in his hand and that it's guy. between his index finger and his other finger. So still impressive. playing the keyboards while they're recording. Yeah, I mean that was wild. <laughs> little things like that, you know, I caught my eye and I was just like, man, it's a different time uh, in some ways and in some ways not. Fascinating stuff. Well, let's take our last break here, Spencer. We'll come back with some final thoughts on the Get Back documentary. This is the Sound Matters show. Soundmatters.tv is our website. If you want to shoot an email to me for the show, guest ideas, topic ideas, or just some feedback, soundmatterssshow at gmail.com. And uh, we'll appreciate that. I'm Tom Lou. We'll be right back after a fast break. Don't go away. I thought it fitting to end the show with The Long and Winding Road, which I think was the official last single released by the Beatles. Was that right? I could be wrong on that. It might have been Let It Be, but this is from the, again, the naked version of the Let It Be album out there, wherever you get your music without all the strings and everything. I don't know which one I like better. I like some of the naked versions better, but some of the other ones I like what Spectre did on it as well. But kind of wrapping up here, Spencer, talking about the Beatles documentary. It's not for the faint of heart. It's a long one. It's like eight hours. It clocks in at like eight hours and something. So if you're not a huge Beatles fan, you might not love every little bit of it. But I'll tell you what, even if you're not, you should check it out. Watch what's happening between the guys. Watch what's happening between all of the people uh, there in the studio and how they defer to each other and how they don't and just some of the subtleties and all of that kind of thing. I'm a fan of that anyway. Obviously, I talk about it a lot on this show in terms of uh, human communication, interpersonal communication skills and things like that. And whether we're talking about being a beetle (laughs) or just a regular person like most of the rest of us here, you know, it's just fascinating to watch how all that unfolds. But also just to see basically here, this is the world's most celebrated band and a very crossroads moment in their career there is at the end as we know now that we have the benefit of hindsight now and you know the film makes it seem like all's well that ends well but of course we know that's not what happened the Beatles broke up not long after that but it shows a balance between them and I think this is probably my biggest takeaway from the film my final thought on it is just the film shows up a balance between the tension and the silliness that these guys had uh, at the highest level of the entertainment of the music business, you know, the, the fractures that they had between each other, but also the affection, I think, that Mark pointed out earlier. I think it's a pretty accurate reflection for the most part, or, or was it? Because, again, they knew the cameras were on. They knew they were being recorded and all of that. So that's going to change anyone. But I think we also saw some moments, if you're really paying attention, some of those breakthrough moments, you can see the real them coming through and, and all of their insecurities and the things that, just like anybody has, you know, yet they figured it out and they went on to create this, obviously, this mountain of work that uh, we still talk about to this day as we are right now. So good, good stuff. I hope you watch the rest of it, Spencer, and get some more and get get it finished off. Of course, culminating with the rooftop concert. Right. I plan on catching the rest of it. Um, 
You know, it's one of those, I don't know that I would have watched it uh, in its entirety on my own, but we wanted to do this show. And so I, I sat down and started watching it uh, about a week and a half ago. And I'm really glad that I, I am because uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying it, if for no other reason than the anthropological study that it is. And you really get to see, like you said, some very famous individuals interacting on a very human scale. Uh, and it, it's really cool to watch. Not to mention, you get to sit there and watch Paul McCartney just be Paul McCartney uh, a whole bunch. I could watch him just sit and play around on a piano for hours. Uh, the dude's just entertaining doing anything revolving around music. Agreed. And then, and then, like Mark pointed out, the interplay between him and John. And then these songs, that, and now we have the benefit of knowing these are classics. They've been around for, for some of us, all of our, our lives, you know. And, but to see it come to be, to see how it was created, I think whether you're a big Beatles fan or not, or these are your favorite Beatles songs or not, which they're probably not for a lot of people, just how it came to be, the creation process. And that's really what this show's about. That's what Sound Matters is about, digging into the, the sound matters, the important things, the interesting things underneath the surface that drives any kind of great creation. And I think arguably none more than what the Beatles did. All right, well, thanks for listening. Many thanks to Donnie V, formerly of Enough's Enough, for calling in, and my good friend Mark Jake Jacobson, and thanks to you, Spencer Jacobson, for uh, running the show. And I'm going to shout out my little nephew again, Jackson Robertson, for listening. Appreciate you, buddy. I love you. My name is Tom Lou, and until we meet again, stay tuned in. Take care. This is Sound Matters with Tom Liu. Visit us online at soundmatters.tv.